0: And why do you need to connect with your audience? Because your information goes nowhere if you don't meet the needs of your audience. And what they need from you is the kind of connection that they don't get from the printed word. I'm David Ote, and this is The Power of Story and Science, a mix of content and conversations on how to bring your science to life through powerful presentations. In this episode, you'll get into the nuts and bolts of story as a rhetorical device. First, the practical elements of what purposes a story should accomplish for you as a speaker. And second, a couple of easy to use formulas that will help you with the question of how to put together a story that achieves those objectives. Hello and welcome to Episode 4 of The Power of Story and Science. I'm your host, David Otey. Today's episode will be another content episode. I'll be drawing primarily from material in Chapters 2 and 3 of my book, The Speaker's Quick Guide to Telling Better Stories. As promised at the end of the last episode, this episode is going to be very nuts and bolts. We're going to be looking at just what precisely a story should do for you as a speaker and also how to put a story together. We'll look at a couple of simple story models that will help you take your ideas and shape them in such a way that those stories can benefit you as a speaker. So we're going to start, the first part of the episode is going to be the the what, the what a story should do for you. There's, it turns out, three particular things that a story should do for you as a speaker. The first is that your story should anchor a point, okay? Let me talk about what I mean by this word anchor. Anchor. An anchor to a speaker is a rhetorical technique for making a point clear, vivid, and memorable. There are a number of different tools that can be used as anchors. One of those, for example, may be an acronym. Many speakers like to use acronyms where their points will uh, stand for the, the first letter of a word that is spelled out. An acronym can be something like FEAR stands for false evidence appearing real. An anchor may be an analogy, or an anchor may even be an activity that gets your audience members up out of their seat briefly, interacting or doing something on their own. But the most commonly used anchor by most speakers is the story. And here's where inexperienced speakers often make their first mistake. They think of a story primarily as a way to Amuse or entertain their audience. Unless you've been hired as an entertaining speaker, that's the wrong approach. Each story you select should have a value in reinforcing a key point you are making. The often repeated advice for giving a speech, which I've heard attributed to a fellow by the name of Bill Gove, but I can't vouch for that, goes something like this Tell a story, make a point. Tell another story, make another point, tell another story, make another point. You get the idea. This means that before you select a story to tell, you need to know what point you are making and what story might help to emphasize, underscore, or clarify that point. Trying to build your speech around a favorite story instead of selecting a story that truly illustrates your point is a good way to lead you off in the wrong direction. So as a speaker, one of the things I've done for a number of years is I've kept a story file. A story file, that was the word I was looking for. Uh, This is just a collection of short descriptions of things I know that have happened to me or that I've seen happen that I might use as an illustration in a speech. In many cases, when I first made note of those stories, I didn't know what point I might be illustrating with them, but I kept them anyway. And in some cases, as you'll see, there are stories that I turned to many years later once I finally figured out what the point of them was. Here's one example. Years ago, as I was keeping my story file, I wrote down the phrase, once upon a time I, and I thought of some different ways to complete complete that sentence. And one of the ideas I came up with was, Once upon a time, I was a clown in a circus for one day. It came about because I was working as a disc jockey at a radio station when I was 20 years old and home for the summer from college, and this radio station did a promotion with a circus that was traveling through town. Now, for the longest time, I thought it was an amusing anecdote with no real point, until I figured out that it wasn't just a story about how I got to be a clown in a circus for one day, because... That didn't have enough tension in it to make the story worth telling. Instead, it was a story that was rather amusing because the climax is me falling on my face in the center ring under a big top at a circus. But when I finally realized it was a story about a a shallow young man, myself, who desperately wanted to avoid embarrassing himself in public and was thrust into a clown costume and makeup with no idea what was going to happen next... Then I realized that I could use that story to illustrate a number of different points, such as falling is not failing, or falling forward is still progress, or growth opportunities come in many disguises, or even never trust anyone whose smile is painted on. The point is, I had no good use to tell that story until I knew what point it was going to illustrate. So the first thing a story should do for you is to anchor a point in your speech. The second thing a story should do for you is make you, the speaker, relatable to your audience. Now, there's a number of techniques you want to keep in mind that will help the story make you relatable to the audience. These are little tweaks in how you construct and tell the story the first of those is avoid making yourself the hero you see when you make yourself the hero of the story you're putting yourself on a pedestal and your listeners may think well that's fine for you because you're this special person to whom these special things have happened but how can that apply to me One of my favorite speakers, Craig Valentine, says, put the process, not the person, on the pedestal. So if you want me to learn something from your experience, help me see how someone else helped you find a way past the obstacle that you encountered. When you make yourself the hero of a story, you make yourself less relatable. So a story shouldn't say, in essence, look at the problem I had and how I solved it, Rather, it should be more along the lines of, look at the problem I had, just like yours, and the wonderful solution that someone else revealed to me. And then in doing that, your audience will feel you've revealed something special to them. So avoid making yourself the hero of all your stories. Another technique for making yourself more relatable when you tell a story is, put the best lines in someone else's mouth. When you're spouting words of wisdom all the time, like a speaker I know who likes to quote himself in his internet memes, you're making yourself on a pedestal again. You're making yourself less approachable, less relatable. So when you tell a story, put the best line in someone else's mouth. Is that historically accurate? It may not be. Is it, does it have an emotional truth to it? I think that's the more important question. And then make sure, part three, make sure that you're, when you tell your stories, that you are including your failures and your flaws. We all like to talk about our successes, but unless someone knew what you went through, what problem like theirs you had to solve before you found that success, you're not making yourself relatable. That's why I tell the story about falling on my face, literally, in the center ring of a circus because you can laugh with me at that situation. It's also why I tell of an embarrassing moment professionally when I totally lost my cool in front of a group of my colleagues. Because I believe that makes me more relatable when I tell what i learned from that situation and how I became a better manager because of it. So that's the second thing a story should do for you. It should make you more relatable to the audience. And there's three techniques I shared with you there for doing that. The third thing that a story should do for you is to help you make a connection with your audience on multiple levels. And the way you do that is, has a lot to do with how you tell the story. For example, you want to engage multiple senses as you're telling the story. You want to create and sustain a certain amount of tension. I've mentioned in earlier episodes the research by Paul Zack at Harvard where he said tension sustains attention. There must be a striving, a conflict, a desire that is initially thwarted by an obstacle in order for that story to engage our curiosity, get the oxytocin flowing in the brain, and thereby create empathy for the speaker. So you need to find a way to create and sustain some tension in that story. And as my 8th grade English teacher said, there are three kinds of conflict in all literature. Man against man, man against nature, and man against himself. And I realize I've just said that using gender-exclusive language. You'll have to excuse me. That's the way I heard it all these years ago. We would, of course, be more inclusive about that now. So make sure you're clear on what the nature of the conflict is, whether it's between two people, between a person and the world, or a conflict internal to that person, him or herself. And then the other thing you want to do to engage the audience on multiple levels is make sure you are showing the audience the change you want them to make. When you've created empathy by getting that oxytocin flowing your listeners will then want the change that they saw the protagonist of the story undergo. They'll want that change for themselves, sometimes even before they know what it is. Let me give you an example. Here's a story that I think I can tell you in about three minutes, okay? It starts on a June day over 20 years ago. I found myself hiking up a mountain near Breckenridge, Colorado, with a client to look at a communication site because of the work I was doing at the time. And this communication site was located at about 12,000 feet above sea level. We were walking because I, in my arrogance, being fairly new to the mountains, had thought that by June I would be able to drive us to the top of this mountain in a four-wheel drive pickup truck until we were stopped by a snowbank that completely blocked the road. We were already at 11,000 feet. I thought, we'll have to turn back. My client, Dan, looked at me and said, we can walk from here. So we started walking. Now, I had only been in Colorado about a year after growing up near sea level. And so before long, at 11,000 feet, I was having a hard time breathing. I would take one step or two steps and then have to pause for breath. One or two more steps and then pause for breath. And I was—I found it too discouraging to even look up the hill at how far we had left to go. So I remember looking down at my feet and seeing these little yellow and purple flowers in the springy tundra that we were walking across once we were above timberline. And even though we were above timberline, I could still smell the forest smells wafting up on the breeze from the valley floor. And there I was, out of breath, trying not to lose face with Dan, my client, who lived in Breckenridge at 10,000 feet and probably thought this elevation climb was, was nothing at all. He wasn't even breathing hard. He was carrying my day pack for me and waiting patiently for me to work my way up the mountain, and I was saying to myself, David, this is all your fault. You're embarrassing yourself in front of this client. You should have listened to your boss who said the road wouldn't be clear until July, but no, you knew better. And now here you are, wasting Dan's time and embarrassing yourself when all you wanted to do was show how competent you were. As we climbed higher, my spirit sank lower as I continued beating myself up mentally for being in this situation. And then... At one point, Dan, who was a few yards ahead of me, stopped, looked back over my shoulder, and said the words that changed everything for me. He said, Can you believe somebody is paying us to do this? I stopped. I looked up. Coming into view over that ridge where the 14,000-foot peaks of the Continental Divide, I looked the other way, the town of Breckenridge was spread out on the valley floor below, and beyond that, over the ski mountains, I could see the Mount of the Holy Cross, a rare sight because you can't see it from the road, and this was just the right time of year to see the enormous cross formation that that lingers there as the snow melts out of the crevices in the face of that mountain. I was looking at some of the most Gorgeous scenery you can possibly imagine. And yet all I could think was, I screwed up. I'm not demonstrating my competence to be in control of this situation. It took Dan offering me a different perspective for me to realize that my point of view needed to shift. My spirits rose. I shook off the burden of all the invisible critics I was carrying with me. Now, did my lungs fill with air and did I go prancing to the top of the mountain? No, I was still out of breath. But I was no longer carrying the burden of all those invisible critics. All it took was a change in my perspective. Now, let's look at some of the story elements. Did I say, here's what I saw, here's what I smelled, here's what I felt? No, I wove those descriptions into the story and I engaged Multiple senses. I told you about the, the, mount, the, the mountain breeze carrying the scent of the forest up to me and seeing the little flowers. I used tension. I revealed the, well, there was some man versus nature conflict going on there. It was me against the mountain and the mountain almost won. But the real tension was the internal tension, the man against himself beating myself up for getting into this situation instead of looking like I was in control of it. How did I reveal that? Using the technique of internal dialogue. I used dialogue to reveal to you what I was thinking, what I was saying to myself. So all of these are ways that the story made me relatable, anchored a point, and engaged the audience on multiple levels. That's what a story can do for you as a speaker. It was a fairly simple story. There wasn't a huge amount of tension or conflict in it. And yet you saw something you'll remember. You felt something you'll remember. And hopefully you'll remember the point that what it took for me was a change in my perspective. So that's what a story can do for you as a speaker. We're going to take a little pause. And when we come back, we'll look at how you put a story together so that it can do those things. We're going to look at a couple of very simple story models, and we'll shift the nuts and bolts from what a story does for you to how you put it together so that it does those things. I'm David Odie. This is The Power of Story in Science, and I'll be right back. Welcome back. In the previous segment of this episode, we were looking at the nuts and bolts of what a story can do for you as a speaker. Now we're going to shift to the nuts and bolts of how you construct a story that will do those things for you. How do you accomplish the objective that you're trying to accomplish by using a story? You may recall from an earlier episode, or perhaps you don't, so I'll summarize it for you that i've cited this the research of a harvard researcher named paul zack who has looked into the question of oxytocin that neurotransmitter that produces feelings of empathy for another person and in particular what paul zack looked at was what are the conditions under which your brain expresses oxytocin one of those conditions it turns out is when you experience a story not just any story though a story that has a certain amount of tension to it. As Paul Zach says, tension sustains attention, and attention is in short supply. So we need a way to sustain it in our listeners. And the way that we do that is by telling a story that has attention, a conflict, a striving, a desire that is not immediately satisfied. Okay? Because if that desire were immediately satisfied, the story would be over before it began. One way to describe that is with a simple model called the ABC model. It goes something like this. A wants B despite C. A is the protagonist who wants something. B is the object of desire. It can be a physical object, the one ring. It can be a love object, Prince Charming. It can be an aspiration, to live happily ever after. But any story you can think of you can apply the ABC model to. A wants B despite C. And C is very important because C is the obstacle that is, at the beginning of the story at least, preventing the protagonist from attaining what the protagonist wants. If there's no obstacle, there's no story. So there needs to be attention. As I said, any story you can think of, you can apply this model to. Cinderella wants to go to the ball and meet the prince despite not having clothes or transportation. The three little pigs want a safe place to live despite the big bad wolf and very poor building techniques. Dorothy wants to go home from Oz despite a host of problems including a witch who wants her shoes. Somebody wants something and they're thwarted initially from getting it. That's the ABC model. Apply that to the story I told you in the previous segment about the time I was hiking up the mountain embarrassed that I was having to walk up instead of drive up with my client, who was a, that was me, the protagonist. What did I want? Well, I wanted to uh, get up to the top of the mountain. And I wanted to show this client that I was capable and competent and in control of that project. Despite what? Despite the physical challenge of the elevation gain and the mental challenge of beating myself up for it, as I revealed in my internal dialogue. So, to sum up, I wanted to be in control despite feeling out of control. Not a huge amount of tension. On the other hand, it's only about a three-minute story, too. In a, more, in a longer story, you might be able to elaborate and even ratchet up the tension before it is finally resolved. So, A wants B despite C. That's a place to start. Who is the protagonist? What does that protagonist want? And what is preventing the protagonist from attaining the object of their desire initially in that story? And then as the story unfolds, we'll see how that obstacle was overcome. So, A, B, C is the starting point. It's not the complete story. It's an excellent starting point, though, because it prompts you to go ahead and set up that tension right away. So there's the ABC model. That is the simplest model I know for creating a story. You can read more about that and two additional models in my book, The Speaker's Quick Guide to Telling Better Stories, which is available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble in both paperback and e-reader formats. Now, recently... I became aware of another story model that I also like and I'm going to share with you. And this is not in that book. You can find it in a book by another author. That author is Randy Olson. And the title of his book that I'm referring to is Houston, We Have a Narrative. Why Science Needs Story. Randy Olson, Ph.D., is a marine biologist who left a tenured academic position to move to Hollywood and become a filmmaker. So he understands the power of story and science. The power of story in particular to communicate about science. He uses a model that he believes has been present since the beginning of stories. And he calls it the ABT model, not to be confused with the ABC model or the ABT template. Let me explain, let me give you an example of the ABT template. I might say to a scientist, for example, you are a technical expert and you are motivated to share your expertise with the world, but you may find it difficult to connect with an audience. Therefore, you need tools like a story model to help you do that. Notice the conjunctions in what I just said and, but, and therefore. That's what gives the name to the ABT template, and, but, therefore. It sounds simplistic, it sounds formulaic, and it works. I encourage you to try it. What Randy Olson has found is that in contrast with a lot of anecdotes that are just told with and, 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 and this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and there's no story arc, there's no development to it. And, but, therefore, has automatically a bit of a story arc built into it. It's as if the and statements, or the statements that are joined by and, are the first act of a play. Here's the setting, here's the situation at the, at the outset but represents a change in direction and therefore represents a resolution, act three. So using the and, but, therefore template, you get a whole three-act play in as little as a sentence. I needed to take my client to a communication site on the top of this mountain, and I wanted to show that client that I was capable of being in charge of his project, but... I hadn't counted on snow blocking the road in June or my lungs being unaccustomed to that elevation. Therefore, I struggled until Dan said something that changed my perspective. I summed up my walking up the mountain story in one sentence using and but therefore, and you could still see the story arc in it. So try that. Try using and, but, therefore. What is your initial situation? What is the contrasting element that, that begins the story arc? And what is the therefore? What are you looking for as a resolution to that story? See, it seems very simple. And it is, and it's very powerful, and it's a great way to start. It's not the complete toolkit for completing a story, for shaping a story, and using dialogue and description and things like that, which you can read about in my book, it is, on the other hand, a great place to start because it will help you shape a story that has some texture to it instead of simply being an and, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, which becomes an exercise in boredom rather than an exercise in communication. So let's review what we've looked at today. We've talked about the nuts and bolts of what a story does for you as a speaker. And I gave you three points about what a story needs to do for you. It needs to anchor a point. It needs to make you human. And it needs to make multiple connections with your audience or connections on multiple levels, which is how you introduce such things as dialogue and sensory description. And then we looked at two simple models, the ABC model and not to be confused, the ABT model for starting out the creation of a story. As we get further into this podcast series, The Power of Story and Science, you'll pick up more tips for shaping and telling your story in order to connect with your audience in ways you may never have thought possible. And why do you need to connect with your audience? Because your information goes nowhere if you don't meet the needs of your audience. And what they need from you is the kind of connection that they don't get from the printed word. This is The Power of Story and Science, a periodic podcast by David Odie. That's me, and I would love to hear from you. You can reach me quite simply by going to the website storyandscience.com that will lead you to where you can find ways to contact me, including a button that simply says schedule consultation. By using that, you can get on my calendar for a 15-minute conversation about anything you like. I'd be happy to talk to you. I'd love to hear from you. If you have suggestions for future episodes of The Power of Story and Science, I hope you'll get in touch with me by that means as well. I'm David Ody, and I'm glad you listened. Thanks for being here. This has been The Power of Story and Science. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend. Leave us a review. Or, so that you don't miss anything, subscribe at Podbean or wherever you like to get your podcasts. This program is a production of Speaking of Solutions, LLC. Theme music by Kevin Lufkin. I'm David Odey. Thanks for listening.